So right away, I want to let you know, as we start the message, our goal together this morning. And it's simply to really look at the triumphal entry. To really look at the triumphal entry. Because it's Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before we remember Jesus' cross and resurrection. And on this day, we look back on how Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And we call it Palm Sunday because on this day in history, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem as Israel's king. And many people in response laid down their cloaks and their palm branches as he entered in. And palm branches back then were a symbol of victory and triumph. And that's why this day has traditionally, or this event has traditionally been called the triumphal entry. Because again, this is when Jesus, the king, triumphantly entered his city with with people honoring him and praising him with those hosannas. And yet, all along, as we will see this morning, although that did happen, what this really was about was the king coming in, but not with the result that the people ultimately would all be lauding him, but instead with the result that he'd soon, within, within a mere week, be crucified by these people. Right, this scene is about Jesus, who, yes, is the king, who is coming in to deliver his people, but he's doing it in the sort of way that none of them wanted nor expected. Instead, he's inter- entering into Jerusalem to go to the cross. And so that's what we'll be looking at at our time this morning, what this triumphal entry is really all about. And in short, it is a day of celebration, but it's also a day leading to the cross. It's a day of praising and rejoicing, but it's also Jesus' path to ridicule and rejection. And it's a day when all these people marveled at Jesus, but soon they'll be mocking him and they'll murder him. Which brings us to how we'll go through our time together. So as you probably noticed in the scripture reading, we have two passages this morning. And that's because these two passages are only separated by about half a page in your Bibles. And they both talk about Jesus in Jerusalem. And to go through these passages, we're actually going to have four steps detailing the story of Jesus in Jerusalem. And in these four steps, we'll be covering both of those passages. But as for what the steps are, we'll actually just reveal them as we go throughout the story. But that said, as for our first step, step one in the story of Jesus in Jerusalem, here we'll see what Jesus said would happen in Jerusalem. And for this, we're going to be in that first passage listed in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, if you want to look there. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And we'll start, though, with just verse 17 and the beginning of verse 18. So if you want to look down at your Bibles, Matthew 20, verses 17 and the beginning of verse 18. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And we'll stop there. We stop there because, although it may seem obvious, twice here we see very clearly Jesus' intentions and what he's doing. Because as for the larger story about Jesus here, Jesus has now been traveling around and teaching and doing miracles for about three years, and now he's going up again to Jerusalem. And I know that might sound simple, but you can see for yourself how the fact that he's really going to Jerusalem is emphasized here. right? Because Matthew writes to start verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, 
And then Jesus starts verse 18 with, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And so it's twice in God's word for emphasis. And the reason for that is because this was a big deal. Because remember, Jerusalem is where Israel's king belongs. And so the Messiah saying he's going up to Jerusalem is significant. And not only significant, but this is always where Jesus was climactically intending to go all along. Or as Luke writes in Luke 9.51, from the very outset, Jesus, quote, set his face to go to Jerusalem. All because this is the place where the Messiah was meant to go. And many thought that this Messiah, Israel's king, would go there, he would deliver, and he would finally reign. But that then leads us to what Jesus amazingly says in his very next breath to these disciples about this trip. And as you hear this, I know we probably know all these things that Jesus is about to talk about here. But imagine yourself as one of these disciples. Right? Imagine yourself as just being an Israelite who was so thrilled that apparently the Messiah was really here and he's going to Jerusalem. Look down at your Bibles again. We'll start in verse 17 again, just for context. And we'll read through verse 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. So what does this Messiah say is going to happen in Jerusalem? Well, to begin, you notice there Jesus calls himself the Son of Man in the middle of verse 18. And, and that in itself was a divine kingly title from Daniel chapter 7. And, and so again, hearing Jesus begin like that, the disciples would have thought, yes, the Daniel 7 Son of Man, the King, is about to rule and reign. But what will happen to the Son of Man? He'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. He'll be condemned to death. He'll then be delivered over to the Gentiles, the nations. The nations that this king is supposed to rule over, not be delivered to. And finally, he'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified. All to strangely rise on the third day. And again, I know we know that if we've heard anything about Jesus before. And yet, I hope we feel how strange this would have been for them. The fact that this was going to happen in Jerusalem. But, but because notice how emphatic it is, though, Jesus in his statement to his disciples there includes five negative verbs to really stress the point. Five verbs. He'll be delivered over to the Jewish leaders in the nations. He'll be condemned, which is a legal word, meaning they'll try him and they'll say he's guilty. He'll be mocked, which if being condemned emphasizes, emphasizes guilt, being mocked emphasizes shame. He'll be flogged, which is referring to the torturous whipping in the lashes. And then finally, he will be crucified which we know is an awful way that condemned Roman criminals were tortured and killed. And then, yes, Jesus does say that he'll rise again, which is crucial. We'll, we'll get to that later. But overall, what those five verbs shows us, show us is what Jesus says will happen in Jerusalem. Or to say it most simply, he warns his disciples that, yes, he's the king, but once he's in Jerusalem, it won't be a happy rejoicing affair. 
Instead, he, the son of man, the king, is going to be awfully delivered over and mocked and tortured and killed in Jerusalem, which is where they're going. But that then leads us now to our second step in the story. So that's what Jesus said would happen in Jerusalem. But then that brings us to what first did happen in Jerusalem. Now for this, we'll be in our next passage in Matthew 21, and we'll just be in verses 1 through 5. And before we read this, though, just to see this for yourself, because it's interesting, notice that we just saw the word Jerusalem appear twice in Matthew 20, verses 17 and 18. But then in Matthew's own writing here, uh, you know when the next time he uses the word Jerusalem is in his text? Well, it's actually here in Matthew 21.1. And so think about it. If we were reading the book of Matthew, not knowing anything for the first time, most likely we'd hear verse 1 we're about to read about Jesus finally drawing near to Jerusalem. And, and what would we expect? Well, we'd expect it to get bleak. Right? I mean, Jesus just told us what will happen in Jerusalem. And yet something else happens first in Jerusalem. Now for this step, we'll read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 21. So look down to your Bibles. Matthew 21, 1 through 5. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So what happens here? Well, as you might know, we have this story first where Jesus sends two of his disciples into the village. And in his miraculous power and providence, he gets his disciples to get for himself a donkey and a colt. And on this, we won't spend a lot of time, but it is awesome how Jesus just easily displays who he is as he's sovereignly able to look into a city and provide like that. So that happens, but why is that so significant? Well, again, look at what Matthew specifically tells us in verse 4. Quote, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then in verse 5 comes this prophecy from the Old Testament from Zechariah chapter 9. And, and just so you know, prophecy is just a word for something that God said through someone. And, and so this is just something that God said would happen. And just skimming at what that prophecy in verse 5 says, you can see that the main idea and the main word there is that when all this does happen, the king has finally arrived. Or as it specifically says in verse 5, Behold, your king is coming to you. But even more so, what's amazing about that prophecy there in Zechariah 9 is who this king is. Because, because as you can see, it's always been promised that this king would come, but he wouldn't just be a typical king. Instead, this king was also to be an amazingly gentle and humble king. And that's why this donkey was so important, by the way, because back then a donkey being such a lowly animal symbolized both humility and peace. And so if you think about it, for a king to come into his city, not on some crazy extravagant throne, but on a mere donkey, showed that this truly was a humble king. And that he was even one of us. 
And that's what God was always promising would be the case in the Old Testament with this coming Messiah. And it's what Jesus himself is fulfilling here in the triumphal entry. And on this, as a quick application for us, although there is a lot more going on in this passage that we're about to see, still, I hope we all know that concerning who this king is, what we see right there is still true of Jesus today. Meaning he still is the humble king. And that's why if when you hear Jesus is king, you kind of imagine a heartless, unconcerned ruler sitting somewhere on his throne, then this picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey here can be really helpful. Because it's why God included it all the way back in Zechariah 9. And it's why Jesus fulfilled it here in his triumphal entry. Because the truth is, Jesus is king. And this means he is totally sovereign over all the world and over all of us as God and as Savior. And one day, every single person will recognize that. But also, Jesus is a good king. A gentle, humble king who cares so much for his people. And he's even one of us. But that's in the second step in our story. Step one, Jesus predicted what would happen in Jerusalem. And now here in step two, we see though what first took place in Jerusalem. But that then brings us now to our third and our biggest step in our story. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem as king. But now in our third step, we'll see how the people responded to him as he came in. How the people responded to him. And for this, we'll be in verses 6 through 11. And again, remember, Jesus said earlier that in Jerusalem, he'd be delivered over to the people and mocked and flogged and crucified. And now he's entering in as king. So so how do the people respond? We'll begin with just verses 6 through 8. If you want to look down at your Bibles, verses 6 through 8. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So this this humble king is coming in on this donkey on the colt in verses 6 and 7. In response, what did the people do? They, They spread their cloaks and the palm branches on the road. And as we said earlier, this is important because it symbolized, symbolized homage to the king and triumph and victory. Or, or to say it most simply, these people were saying with their actions, yes, this is our king. They were celebrating this claimed Messiah arriving into his city. Which then leads us to what they most famously said in verses 9 through 11. So look down now, verses 9 through 11. And the crowds that went before him And that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So before we do get to those Hosannas, notice first who's involved in all this. In verse 9, it's, quote, the crowds Right, that went before Jesus and followed him. And so we have crowds in front of Jesus and crowds following Jesus. And then in verse 10, it's, quote, the whole city that was stirred up. And I, and I point that out because we need to sense how massive this was. Or as the Apostle Paul says to Felix later, much later in Acts 26, all of this with Jesus and what he did, quote, wasn't done in a corner. 
And, and I know that sounds simple, but it's true because this was a lot of people in Jerusalem. There's crowds behind and in front of Jesus. And who this Jesus is, is the buzz of the whole city. Which leads to what they famously say in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And in each of those sentences, you can see what they thought of this Jesus. First, they saw him as the promised son of David, which one more time is just another way of saying the king, since the son of David was the promised descendant of King David. Second, they saw him coming in the name of the Lord, meaning they saw God at work here. And then third and finally, the Hosanna in the highest shows us that they were praising God for what was going on, which finally brings us to those Hosannas themselves. And now this is a term I'm sure we've all heard. And it's probably a term that maybe we've even sung in some modern worship songs. But it's on this term specifically and what it means for these crowds that our whole story hinges. But to begin on this, as for, as for what the word itself means, very simply, Hosanna in Hebrew just means deliver us or save us or rescue us. And in essence, it was just a cry for God's help. And as for where it originated, it originated in the Old Testament, specifically in Psalm 118, verse 15, which in English reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord. And so that's what they're actually saying. They're crying out, Deliver us! Deliver us! And this means that although Hosanna might sound special and maybe even spiritual to our ears, for them, they were, they were simply shouting, Deliver us! in Hebrew. So that's what it means. But that brings up the most important issue and question on us. And it's this that will apply to us as well. And that's the question, but what did they want deliverance from? Because if you think about it, deliver us can't be said in a vacuum. Instead, crying Hosanna implies that they thought they needed deliverance from something. And so the question is, what was it? Why were these crowds crying out for deliverance? And now I know maybe a lot of this has been a lot, but as, but as we said a minute ago, it's really here that this whole story hinges. Because Hosanna, or Lord, deliver us, is a biblical concept. And so if they are crying out Hosanna for the right reasons that correspond to who this Messiah actually is, then this is commendable worship. But, if they were crying out for deliverance for the wrong reasons that don't correspond to who Jesus really is, then you can see the whole scene here almost falls apart. So again, what's the deliverance they were crying out for? Well, the main answer, as you might know, is they really wanted deliverance from those oppressive Romans. <laughs> That's primarily it. And it's important for us to know this, reading this story. And the reason they wanted this deliverance was based in their century-old Jewish history. Because in Jewish history, they were exiled from their land in 586 B.C. And then they were brought back into their land. But then over time, while even in the land, they were overtaken again eventually by these Romans. And it's in that historical setting that Jesus of Nazareth here arrives on the scene. The Israelites have been under the Romans for quite some time. And so in their minds, they really needed political deliverance. Political salvation. Remember, because salvation and deliverance are the same word. 
And therefore, it's with that in mind that they did interpret a lot of their Old Testaments, their Bibles, because they knew that the Messiah, the King, was supposed to come. And so when he did come, many of them immediately thought, man, he's going to deliver us politically from Rome. He's finally come to do that. Hosanna. But really importantly, as we know from later in this week, then when it became clear that Jesus wasn't going to deliver them like that in the way that they wanted or thought, what then did their cries become? No more Hosannas. No more blessed is he's. Instead, crucify him. Crucify him. So that's our third step in the story. Jesus King, he's entering to Jerusalem. And for the most part, at his entrance, these people seemingly responded positively. They honored him as the king. They cried out in praise, deliver us. But why? All because they wanted their deliverance, their salvation from Rome. And now before we do move on to our fourth and final step, let's, let's really set, let that scene sink in. Right? Because we can sometimes see this triumphal entry as all rejoicing and happiness. And while it is true that in a sense Jesus is being praised as king here, what's also true is that these people are crying out for deliverance basically for these shallow political reasons alone. And then again, most importantly, when those aspirations don't materialize, the same crowd within the week cries out for him to be crucified. And this then applies to us because, to be honest, we're often just like these people. And that's where we need to check ourselves. Because if we boil down what's really happening here, these people were putting on Jesus what they wanted and what they thought they needed most over against who he actually was. And to be clear on this, to give them some leniency, the Romans were pretty nasty overall. <laughs> they were. And so it made sense for these Israelites to want to be delivered from Rome. And so it wasn't necessarily just because they wanted that that was the problem. Instead, their biggest issue was that they so expected this deliverer and king to deliver them and rule over them in their way that when he didn't, they got angry. And not only that, but they really turned on Jesus. And so now for us, we, we need to check how we can sometimes view Jesus similarly as well. Because just like these people here, we can sometimes say the right things about Jesus. Like Jesus is deliverer, or Jesus is king, or Jesus is healer. But then, and how we define those things, if we don't stick to God's word, we can get really off and just start making Jesus who we want him to be. And that can leave us being frustrated at him, and it can lead us to not genuinely worship him. Right? And here's, here's what I mean. For example, Jesus is the healer in the Bible. Amen. But he doesn't say, right, that he'll heal everyone in this life. And yet it can be so easy to say that since he's the healer, then he really should heal me or that other person if we just have enough faith. But that simply just isn't true. Right? And thinking like that, in essence, is doing what these people did because it's defining what it means to be Jesus by what I think it should mean. And the same is true of Jesus being the blessed king as they say he is here. Right? Because we can hear that and think that that must mean, as some people teach, that Jesus is the prosperous and blessed king wants me to be prosperous. 
But that also isn't necessarily true. And again, thinking like that is in essence doing what these people are doing here. Or finally, and closest to our text, we can know that Jesus is the deliverer and he is the true ruler and king. But then we can think that this means that he really wants to politically save my country. And that out of everything is closest to what these crowds were thinking. And and again, just to be clear on all those things, Jesus does care for us and he does love us and he is the healer and he is the deliverer and he is the king. And yet what we see in this story here is that if we don't stick to how he defines himself as those things in his word, we can so easily become like these people. Because we can, in one scene, be super excited about Jesus and praise him and say, yes, Jesus, I want you as king and deliverer. But then subtly we can really be thinking, I want you as king and deliverer as long as you rule and deliver in the ways I want. As long as you do the things that I think would be best for you to do. Which finally, though, leads us to our fourth and last step of the story. And for this, we're actually going to go back to our first passage in Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19, if you want to turn back there. And if there is anything you hear this morning, I hope it really is how step three connects now to step four. Because we could end our message there in our time and just say, so so that's the triumphal entry and that's the tension it presents to us. But the whole story of Jesus in Jerusalem doesn't end here. Instead, what's amazing and how steps three and four connect is that although the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, deliver us for the wrong reasons. And although they will soon turn on him and they'll cry out, crucify him, what's amazing is that it's through all that that Jesus himself will deliver them and us. Or say it with the crowd's choice of words, Jesus Right, as he's entering Jerusalem and, they're, they're, and he's showing that he's the blessed king and as they're crying out their hosannas, Jesus knows that they're crying out deliverance from the wrong reasons. <laughs> and he knows that they're soon going to crucify him. But he also knows that the very reason he's there is so that he can truly answer cries for deliverance. Hosannas. But not with political deliverance. Because that's not really what they nor we need. That's not enough. Instead, with deliverance from our sin and our brokenness and our lack of peace with God, Jesus the King comes to rescue with a rescuing that brings sinners like them and like us back to God forever. And so that's our last step here. And again, for this, we'll read one last time, Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And as we do so, I know we've already read this, but let's read it here. Read what Jesus says here, realizing that Jesus soon knows that they're going to cry out for deliverance. So Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
So knowing what's about to happen in the triumphal entry, I hope this passage takes on a new light for you. Because we just saw when Jesus first entered Jerusalem, this mocking and crucifixion was not the emphasis. Instead, the emphasis was him being the king, the humble Zechariah 9 king with crowds of people praising him and lauding him and crying out, Hosanna. And the thing is, in a sense, they were right. Because he is the king. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. He is a humble king. He is going to deliver. But now seeing Matthew 20 here, in light of Matthew 21, we can, we can see that Jesus' deliverance will not be in the way they expected. It will not be a majestic overthrowing of Rome. Instead, Jesus knew it was always going to be delivered over, condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified, risen again. And if you think about it, the fact that Jesus knew this, especially in light of what's coming in the triumphal entry, might be why, if you notice, the, the only verb that Jesus uses twice in verses 18 and 19 here is that verb delivered over. Because notice, interestingly, Jesus says he's going to be condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified, but twice he says he's going to be delivered over. He's going to be delivered over to the Jewish leaders, and he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And this is interesting because, again, the crowds are about to soon cry out, Deliver us! Hosanna! And so this means that the theme of Jesus going into Jerusalem, both from his perspective here in Matthew 20 and from their perspective in the triumphal entry, is deliverance. That's the theme. But what the crowds got wrong was how that deliverance was going to happen. But Jesus knew. And how is it going to happen? He was going to be delivered over to achieve true deliverance in order to really answer cries to the Lord for Hosanna. And Jesus did that for sinners like them, sinners who love talking about God and talking about Jesus as King as long as he does things my way. And Jesus did that for sinners like us. Sinners who once again, I hope we should see how similar we are to these people. Because in the end, on our own, we are all selfish. We're all sinners, brothers and sisters, who amazingly, it's amazing, we want to form God and Jesus the King into what we want. And yet still, what's Jesus' response to them and to us? To see us in our foolishness and our sin and mercifully to provide the redemption and the deliverance we really need. All by being delivered over, condemned, mocked, flogged, crucified, for us. So that's the four major steps in our story of Jesus in Jerusalem. First, Jesus said in advance what would happen. Then Jesus, second, showed himself to be the promised king. Then third, the crowds praise him and cry out, Hosanna. And then fourth, it concludes with Jesus achieving that kingly deliverance, but not in the way they expected. Instead, he was delivered over for our deliverance. And yet, that's not even it. Right? There is, in reality, in history, an important fifth step to the story of Jesus in Jerusalem. And it is what we will celebrate more together next Sunday on Easter. And it's what Jesus talks about at the very end there in verse 19. And this is how we'll start to conclude. So look down your Bibles one last time. The end of Matthew 20, verse 19. And he will be raised on the third day. And this now really brings our story full circle. 
Because the truth is, God did promise a king who would come and lovingly and humbly rule over the world. He did promise a king who would one day fully and finally deliver his people. He did promise a king who would reign forever. And God did always envision his people praising that king for his deliverance. But how was it going to happen? One last time, not with some temporary political deliverance from Rome. Instead, it happened with Jesus, the Son of God, the King, living that loving, perfect life, willingly going to the cross, taking on himself the sins of his people and rising again to new life. And why? Why would the King do that? Well, so that we could be reconciled back to God so that we could have a right relationship once again with our God, and so that He could forever be our Savior, our Deliverer, and our triumphant King, because He is alive. (laughs) That's the Gospel, and that is what happened. And so now as we close, church, this means for us, that as we now go from here first, as we've been saying, we should look at this triumphal entry, and we should see ourselves in the crowd. Because let's be honest, we're often crying out to Jesus for deliverance for the wrong reasons. And on our own, we would want to get rid of Jesus when he doesn't do things our way. And so we should humble ourselves and realize that we're all selfish sinners. But more so, second and primarily, each of us should hear this story and look not mainly at ourselves, but at Jesus and his grace. Because the hidden thread throughout both of our passages we read this morning is Jesus' amazing, humble, kingly grace. Because think about it, in our first passage, Jesus knew that in Jerusalem he was going to be delivered over, condemned, mocked, tortured, and crucified. But he went anyway for us. And then in this story, the triumphal entry, Jesus knew that they were misunderstanding him with their hosannas. And he knew that there even being a lot of, there's a lot of bogus feelings in their hearts with most of their praises, since he knew they were going to cry out for his crucifixion within the week, but he went anyway. And why? Well, because he really is that humble, gracious king. Because he's our savior to save sinners like them. And like us. And so so if you're here this morning and you're realizing that you personally right now don't trust this Jesus, I pray that you might do so this morning, maybe even for the first time in your life. Because he is alive. And I hope you've seen for yourself what a good, amazing, humble king he really is. And, And so turn away from living apart from him. And all Jesus calls us each to do is just personally trust him as our Savior and our King. And if you want to talk to me more about that after the service, even during the Easter egg hunt event, I would love to talk to you more because the most important thing after reading a passage like this is to really know this person, personally know this King and Savior for yourself. But finally, for those of us who are here at church and we do trust this Jesus, let's, let's continue to worship him genuinely throughout our whole lives for how good and gracious he is towards us. Because he is our God, he is our Savior, And he is our risen, triumphant king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, church.